Lose over there. Hi there. <clears throat> I'm coughing because my throat is dry as always. And we have gathered together this week to tell you that you cannot love the groom and hate his bride. <sighs> you go, huh? Yes, I can. I, have you met my friends' wives? Not what I'm talking about, <laughs> which will be made clear. What am I talking about? We are talking about the doctrine of ecclesiology, the understanding of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, people, the church. Now, what we are not going to do is make an argument for the right and biblical way of doing church, which would be a plurality of elders with believers' baptism being governed by uh, the body of believers itself with the oversight of elders. We're not going to make that argument because, because well, we're right, and I'm just not going to have it with you, but because I think it's secondary to what the primary argument is, which is the assault on the actual body of the church itself. Now, what I mean by that is I'm not talking about the church triumphant or the church invisible. I'm talking about the actual church visible, the church militant, the necessity of the local church. You need it. You want it. You love it if you're a Christian. That is what I'm trying to get across here. Now, can I prove this is always the important question of the day. And I think the answer to that is a resounding, yes, of course I can. Otherwise, I wouldn't try to make the argument if I didn't think I could prove it. Right. So where shall we start? I think we should start with 1 Peter chapter 2 because I like 1 Peter chapter 2, and I think it kind of gives us a f- uh, framework here. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is laying out what the gospel is, where the gospel comes from, and how you are supposed to live in light of that gospel. So, work of Christ, even though you're struggling and suffering in this world because 1 Peter is addressed to a church facing persecution, the exclusivity of Christ, the totality of Christ, and the necessity of holy living in light of Christ. Peter then spends the beginning part of chapter 2 explaining what does that look like in ever smaller circles. So he starts out with the uh, the group large, and then he begins to move smaller until you get to the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, where he's applying it to individual stations of life. We're not going to get that far. As I take a chug of water, we are going to focus on First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you may be saying to yourself, self, what does that have to do with the church? Oh, Mm -hmm. oh, it connects so many things. So if you're not looking at your Bible, stop and go look at a Bible, Mm -hmm. unless you're driving. In which case, pull over and look at a Bible. 
All right. Good advice. Yeah, yeah. We don't no no rear-ending people in traffic. The police are not going to be like, well, what were you doing? I was reading my Bible while you were on the interstate. Well, what else was I supposed to be doing? No, no, that doesn't fly. Never has. Never will. <laughs> Reason I want you to actually look at your Bible is because if you do look at it and you look at this passage, you will notice that the printer has played with the fonts in this verse or in these verses. Yeah. It looks weird. That's because the printer is trying to tell you something. What he is trying to tell you is that Peter didn't pull these words out of thin air. He didn't sit around and go, now how should I describe the people of God and their relationship to God? I, I mean, I just don't know. I mean, I've got some ideas, but I'm, I'm not really sure. No, Peter didn't do any of that. He actually quoted from the Old Testament. So God has taken a people. Speaking to the church, Peter says, you are a chosen race, quoting back from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even, a, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. So he's hearkening back to the Old Testament. What for Peter do that? In our great caveman speak, the reason Peter is doing that is he is connecting the New Testament to the Old Testament. No, we don't unhitch it before Lou says it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, he was thinking it. I could see him. Right. You're, you're getting better at reading me there. <laughs> he was just waiting to be like, ooh, ooh, I'm going to drop it in there. No, no, I'm going to beat you to it, and we're going to get there ahead. Yes, we got it. He is connecting the two because what Peter is getting a point is, getting across as a point is, there is a people of God. All right? Understand that. Now, before you want to argue with me, I love you, my dispensationalist brethren, but I think you're wrong on this. That is not determined by covenant as far as old and new. It is determined by grace through faith in the work of Christ, even in the Old Testament. You see this in Genesis 3, the grace of God not killing Adam and Eve, the sacrificial animal sacrificed on their behalf. You see this in Genesis 4 and 5, where the family line of Seth being traced, calling upon the name of the Lord. You see this in Genesis 6, where Noah is set aside as righteous in the sight of God, not because of anything that he has done. He proves himself unworthy later on in Genesis what, 8 or 9. Read Genesis, it'll do you good. Mm. He proves himself unworthy, but he finds grace in the sight of God. So he is saved by grace through faith. You see this in Abraham. You see the uh, quoting of Abraham's covenant in Romans. You see the quoting of Habakkuk statement, the righteous shall live by faith, as, as Habakkuk himself is hearkening back to Abraham in the work. You see this throughout the Old Testament. You see the unworthiness of Jacob, you see the unworthiness of Isaac, and yet you see saved by grace through faith in the work that will be done. You see the unworthiness of Moses in arguing before the Lord and failing to enter into the promised land because of his iniquity and transgression. And yet you see what? You see God persevering with his people. You see this in the kings. You see this in the prophets. You get the reminder to Elijah that there are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to bed. Yeah. So you see this holy remnant throughout the Old Testament. Peter reminding you of that is telling you there is a people of God and that people of God are now being fulfilled and demonstrated because we are on now this side of the work of the Messiah. So the church, and I am of the, uh, of the uh, gumption that while Peter is writing to the church you know, universally. I think specifically you can take 1 Peter as a, as a address to the church at Rome because that's where Peter is writing from. So at this point, when you're talking about the Roman church, or even you're talking about the Galatian church, uh, really with the exception of probably the Jerusalem church, you're talking about a diverse body. I mean, read the names at the end of the book of Romans, and you will see 
Persians, Jews, Greeks, Italians. You will see slaves, free men. You will see all sorts of people at work in this church. You will see Jew and Gentile. And what Peter is now telling them is that you are together in Christ. And even though you do not share a lineage, in, excuse me, you do not share a heritage, and in some instances you don't even share a culture, you know what you are? You're a chosen race. You are now the people of God set aside by his work through Christ. There's a lot in those five words, isn't there? I'd say. Now, beyond just that, you are a royal priesthood. Now, how, how are we even supposed to make sense of that? Well, again, Peter is hearkening back. Things like Isaiah 61. You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. He's also hearkening back to what he just said a few verses ago. In 4 and 5, you are coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Now, let's make a distinction. You are not a priest in the same instance that Christ is the high priest or in that the Old Testament priests were doing their sacrificial work. Yeah. You're not a Levitical priest. Yes, not, not in that or vein. Or an Aaronic priest. The Levitical priests and the in the, mm. uh, the uh, Aaronic priests are offering sacrifice on behalf of the people. They are mediating on their behalf. Christ now is your mediator. Therefore, you do not need another mediator. I'm talking to you, Roman Catholics. You don't need someone else to offer on your behalf. Christ has done so. So how am I a priest? Well, you're offering up spiritual sacrifices. This is your Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Saved by grace through faith and not of works so that no man may boast. Why? Because you're prepared for the good works that he has made you for beforehand. That's your Ephesians 2, 10. And that's the uh, terrible Michael paraphrase there. So you're not saved so you'll sit like a bump on a log. You're saved so that you will actually now go about working in the kingdom. So this is your Romans 12, your Hebrews 12, your Romans 6, your 1 Peter 2, in that you are now set aside by God as his people to do his work. So as you live, as you move, as you have your being, you are offering up of yourself daily, taking up your cross, sacrificing your life at the altar of the work of God. So denying self, leaning into and trusting in him. You see this when you get to Revelation. What does Jesus tell? Uh, to, the, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come, from the seven spirits, that's the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us, here it is, to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, the priest is offering the acceptable sacrifice, unless you're Nadab and Abihu, in which case you get fried. Right. But that's what's supposed to happen. So you are now an acceptable priest offering an acceptable sacrifice. How does that work? In Christ, your work is now good. Your work is pleasing to God because it is offered in Christ. So therefore, you are a holy priest of the chosen people. Why are in the holy nation a people for God's own possession? So you have been set aside. You have been claimed by God 
functioning for him. This is, you'll see this in Exodus 19. If you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Again, Peter is quoting from that and applying it to the church. He is setting the body of believers that has gathered together for the ministry of the word, the edification of the saints, and the doing of good works. And he has told them, you are now standing in the line of everything that has come before in the promises of God. That's you. You see the same thing in Deuteronomy 7. A holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now... In case you're wondering, okay, okay, I'm with you. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a people, well, or I'm, I'm a part of a people to be doing work. What's my work? <sighs> See, Peter helps you out. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into those, his marvelous light. So what do we proclaim? <clears throat> we proclaim Christ. And even this is not a new idea. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is uh, Isaiah 9, by the way. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their birth and the staff on their shoulders. Who does that sound like? That's Christ. Yeah, who uses a similar language? Well, Jesus says, come, mm-hmm. take, because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Or did I get that backwards? Is the no, yoke Matthew easy 11. and the burden light? Yeah. yeah, end of Matthew 11 there. Mm-hmm. The rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot, every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire, for a child will be born to us. See, now you're at the Christmas stuff, right? A son will be given. The government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace or on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. For then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Notice the building that is done. This is not just done so I can say, oh, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, we're done and you're in and now you're good. No, this is done in fulfillment of a promise that the nation will increase, that the kingdom will be enlarged. Right, the promises to Abraham are becoming, coming into fruition in Christ and how Gentiles are coming into the body of believers that and what God Pe- established from the beginning. Exactly. And what Peter is hearkening back to is that hasn't stopped. Right. Like, I, I point this out to people all the time. This there's, is a continuation. Yes, there's still work to be done. How do I know that? We're still here. Right. Like, if there was no more work to be done, we wouldn't be here. God would have come back. The kingdom would be ushered in. We'd be worshiping. And we're just done. But we're not done, which means there's, this is still going on. The kingdom is not yet complete because his people are still here, still doing his work. And this is not just an Old Testament concept. Paul explains this. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, uh, for uh, 2 Corinthians 4, <coughs> since we have this ministry, as we, have, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. How do you commend yourself? By word and by deed. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled amongst those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds. Now, 
keep, catch this. In order for the God of this world to blind their minds and veil their minds to not hear the message, what has to be going on first? Why is he doing that? Why does he have to blind their minds and veil their hearts against the message? See, they would repent. They would repent, and they would. But that presumes what? That the message is being what? It's been brought. Yeah, it's being right, proclaimed. Right. It's being proclaimed. In order for the, the enemy to have to. Going in order for the enemy to have to cover you and hide <clears throat> you from it, yeah. it has to actually be out there. This is the work. This is the proclamation. Right. 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 For we you. do not preach ourselves, but. Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bond servants for Jesus' sake. Does a bond servant get to sit and put his feet up and chill? No. 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 He's got to do what? He's a bond servant. Yeah, He's you're working. Serve. Like, yeah. I got things to do here, dude. Mm-hmm. Welcome to you in Christ. For God said, light shall shine out of the darkness. Is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face. In the face and, of Christ. And, and that, that servitude, it, it comes in many forms. If you're a wife, if you're a husband, if you're a child. I mean, you have... You have responsibilities to the gospel. Yes. In every aspect of, of, of those those lives that I just mentioned. I mean, if you're a husband, you lead your family, you disciple them. If you're a wife, you 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 help your husband do the same thing with your children. It and all works. It all See, works. Now keep in mind what's the grounding that Peter's using? He is connecting the work that God is doing in the church to the work that God has been doing in Israel. There's no distinction. Israel was undeserving and claimed by God. And then set to task. Christian, I got bad news for you. You are undeserving, but claimed by God. And now set about the task that he has ordained that you have not. And Peter makes that point in verse 10. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, you weren't a people before God called you. But now, in God's calling, you are a people well, why has God called me this way? Because before you were his people, you hadn't received mercy. But now that you are his people, it is because you have received mercy. That's an important distinction. Yes, it is. Notice, this is why we don't change the gospel and why we don't add to the gospel and why what we're trying to describe here is not an adding to the gospel. I'm not telling you, well, if you want to be a true Christian, you've got to do all of these things. That's not my point. My point is, You're doing all of these things because you are a true Christian. See, the true Christian doesn't have a concept. You don't do these works to keep yourself in the faith. You do these works because you're in the faith and you can't do other things. That is so crucial to get because otherwise you descend into a works-based religion that is so burdensome that you can't even lift your finger to do it. It's too much. Yes, and this is the point Peter's making is you're doing these things because of who you are. You're not doing, like, you're not proclaiming Christ so you can get into the club. You're proclaiming Christ because you're already in the club. And this is, again, hearkening back to your Old Testament, Hosea 1. The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. That's also a promise fulfilled right. to Abraham. Absolutely. Which cannot be measured or numbered, and, the place, and in the place where it is said of them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. The sons of Judah, the sons of Israel will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves one leader, Christ, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Yeah, see, this is repeated in Galatians. Yeah, and, it's, and you see this in how you walk. Galatians 6, this is Paul's final exhortation to the church. Mm-hmm. Again, a church of predominantly Gentile believers that are struggling with how do we connect the Testaments. How do, or, they probably can't say Testaments, they don't have a New Testament yet. But how do we connect the work of Christ and the teachings that you're giving us with what has come before? 
Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one must examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. It sounds like Paul's talking out of both sides of his mouth there, but he's not. Yeah, he's accused of that quite a few times. When you stand before God, will your defense be sufficient if you say, well, well, Joe told me and he was wrong and so I, I didn't know any better. That's not good enough. No. You're responsible for you. Mm-hmm. But if you see Joe walking astray, what are you responsible to do? Tell him. Tell him and point him to the way of truth because there's a difference. When you stand before God, well, Joe was going the wrong way and I followed Joe and I didn't know any better. No, you're still guilty. Likewise, well, Joe was going the wrong way and I saw that he's going the wrong way and I didn't say anything. You're now guilty. Right. See, Some people get caught up in this judge not or lest, you know, you be judged. Uh, it's, so, it's so nonsensical. No. We, we are called to help each other. Iron sharpens iron. We're, Absolutely. We're, we're not supposed to sit by while our brother is, is stumbling and fumbling. Well, you, see, you want to know the stupidity of that statement, though, when they use that as an argument? You can't judge me because Matthew says don't judge. Right. You know what they just did? They just judged. They just judged. Right. You yeah. can't tell me to not do it while you're doing it and then tell me you're the better person. You have to make judgments. You make judgments every day. Right. Notice they only ever quote Matthew 7, 1 and 2. They never quote 3 through 5, which tells you how to make your judgments, right. which is evaluate rightly, deal with your sin, and help your brother out. Right. Right. You have to. You don't. There's no out. You were not a people. Now you are a people. And we look around and realize we hadn't received mercy, but now we have. So when I see you going astray, that grieves me because I know the only reason you aren't going astray is the mercy of God. Which means if you are going astray, what do I want poured out on you? Mercy. Mercy. Yeah. Because you're facing wrath otherwise. So this is, a, this is so important. Now, we spent a lot of time there. Why? Because this is the foundation on which we build out ecclesiology. And what I mean by that is the, the basis for ecclesiology. Again, we can argue about how to do local church as soon as we settle the argument about whether or not we should do local church. And this has become the grand new uh, problem we've got because this, well, it's not new. You've always had, you know, the monks out in the wilderness and the people living on poles separated from everybody and everybody thinking, oh, you're the really holy one. No, that's a forsaking of the body of Christ. And we've always had this problem. So this was big a few years ago. I don't know if you saw this, Lou, but I mm. didn't pull it up. I'm not going to play it for you now because you can go find YouTube. But this, this kid, I, I, don't know, I don't know where he is now, but this whole video about how I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, yeah, you want to talk about a fun place. And, and he goes on to the whole thing about how he loves Jesus and he loves the, the gospel and all of this, but he, he hates the hypocrisy and all the problems in church that we would all go amen to, amen to, and amen to. Mm-hmm. But you can't forsake the church because of those things. And that's why we started where we started. You can't love the groom and hate his bride. I mean, guys, you know this. If your buddies hate your wife, how much time do you actually spend around them? Yeah, you won't, right? You won't because your wife's like, he doesn't like me. Right. And you're going to stop hanging out with that dude because she's not going to have him around and he's not going to be around. And when you have to choose between your buddies and your wife, newsflash, you choose your wife, okay? If you didn't know that, 
You know that now. It's like choosing yourself because the two become one. They're supposed to, uh, Genesis 2. Yeah. (laughs) But I just felt like that needed to be said in our modern context. Right. When in doubt, you choose your wife. Wise advice. Yeah, this this is the same thing happens in the church. So, again, our hallmark for this is Ephesians 5. You know, we're going to zoom pow and skip through the husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands because that's not the point, and I don't want you to get hung up on that. Yes, we can defend it. Yes, we can make the argument for it, but that's not the point right now, and Mm -hmm. I don't want to do a whole separate episode on just that. What I want to get to is after describing how husbands and wives are supposed to work, Paul gives you the reason for this. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That's interesting. The marriage relationship is supposed to function as a picture of the gospel because the church is the bride of Christ. He has died for her. He is sanctifying her, he will complete her sanctification, and he will be presented her and will present her before his father as a spotless, clean, virginal bride. She will be perfect in every way because of his work. Now, tell me how much you love Jesus and hate that idea. I would love to hear it. It's pretty hard to divorce it from that. And it no, is. Pu- no pun intended as far as, you know, yeah. talking about that, Oh, no, that's okay. We, we, and, we like puns. We are yeah. very punny. Yeah. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty hard to separate yourself from the concept of loving the bride, the church, and just saying, well, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. It, it's true. We, we do have things that we need to deal with. Every congregation does. Every church does. Churches are still full of sinners. Right. They're full of people, human people. You know what I mean? It's just you can't avoid the problems that human beings bring to the table. That's that's why you need to, you know, progress in your sanctification and walk it out. I mean, we can't just sit back and say, I'm a member of the bride of the church and, and, and now everything's going to be perfect again. And, and, and that's just not how it works. Well, and not just that. I can't be sanctified in this world apart from the church. And I can't participate in the sanctification of others in this world apart from the church. Well, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the separated ones, sanctified ones, um, were called out for a purpose. It's it's not solitude. It's not to go like the monks did and separate from civilization and practice nothing but prayer and meditation and whatever. Um, We were meant to share the gospel with people, to to deliver the, the message of the gospel to people. Martin Luther called the monastery cowardice. Did he? Yeah. Called fleeing to the monastery cowardice. Why? Because he saw marriage and family as what he called it a school of character. You want to get sanctified real quick? Get married and have some kids. And you will be confronted with every wart, pimple, and potmark on your life. Like that. Because you can't get away from it. Because you will suddenly be intimately aware with just how badly you fall short. Every day. And if you don't know how sinful you are, ask your spouse. Yeah, that's a a tough one. Because they'll be able to tell you. you Because they they live there and they look at you and be like, oh, you think you're good, huh? 
Let's run down the list. It's a school of character. It refines you. It purifies you. It teaches you how to cooperate. It teaches you how to lose gracefully. It teaches you how to admit defeat. It, it, it teaches you how to apologize, how to repent, how to deal with your sin and actually war with it over time and lead others to do the same. That's what marriage and family does, which is why that's the normative pattern for life. It's not the universal pattern, but it is the normative pattern. Catch what I said there. Singleness is a gift from God. I don't think it's given to as many people that are trying to claim it today in the church. That's a different discussion. But this is how we work. We are meant to be in community. So no, you can't love Jesus and hate the church. Now, you can dislike the bad things about the church. Now, are there bad things about the church? No. Are there bad things about a church? Yes, we can admit that. But that does not mean we hate that church. That means we war and we fight against those dark and dying and killing things in the church. How is that ever going to get better if good people constantly forsake them? They won't. They won't. You're, you're abandoning a body of believers to oblivion simply because you haven't got the time or the patience. And look, I say this as an introvert. And I say this as one who is perfectly fine being left alone most of the time. And yet, you know what I do for a living? Right. <laughs> I deal with people and the church. And sometimes it's draining and sometimes it's a war. But you know what? I've never once thought, I need to get out of this line of work and I need to stop doing this because this is just killing me and I can't do it anymore. You know why? Because I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for Jesus. And the minute I get burned out on doing things for Jesus, that's not a problem with Jesus. That's a problem with me. Something is wrong in my walk. So yes, it can be draining, and yes, it can be tiring. I don't care. You're going to be tired anyway. If you're over 25 in this world and you have a job, you're going to be tired. That's just how this works. Like, yeah, for sure. From 25 until the grave, you're just tired. Yeah. I'm you pay dead. bills, you're tired, yeah. and you gripe about your taxes, and you die. There you go. There's life. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't you remember when I used to sleep all night and wake up? No. No, I don't. I don't. I and I don't care anymore. I've, I've just given up. That's why God made coffee. All right. Hmm. <laughs> there you go. Or as I like to call it, anti-murder juice. <laughs> <laughs> Have some fun, people. It'll be all right. But no, you do these things so that you can deal with each other because this is how we work. This is how it works in family. This is how it works in small communities. This is how it works in the church in general is we work together and walk together. Now, why? Why, 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 why? Because you're probably sitting there going, yeah, I, I get all that, but, you know, I can still worship by myself. No, you can't. And why do I say that? Let's ask the trivia. You ready for the Stump the Lou segment? Here we go. All right, Lou. Most complicated question I'm ever going to ask you. You ready? Uh, I don't know. Who gets to define proper worship of God? Well, that would be God. That would be God. I think I passed that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, show him what he's won. Absolutely nothing. nothing. If you've never seen that Weird Al Yankovic movie, you've got to watch that. You can have this fresh snapper, or you can have what's behind door number two. I'll take door number two. It's absolutely nothing. You won nothing. It's an Asian man yelling at her. It's, it's awesome. Um, VHF, UHF, go look up. It's a Weird Al movie. You will laugh hysterically. It is worth it. Hmm. It will do your soul good. You need a laugh. It's I good actually for ran him. into him once. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. So I think the lesson from today is watch Weird Al, it'll do you good. Yes, you'll <laughs> learn many things from Weird Al. So, yeah, you, you, this, is, this is your prize. You win nothing, but you, get, you did get the answer correct. God determines the worship of God. Now, did God determine how we worship? Yes. 
Yes, he did. He has ordained the singing of the songs to him in the tabernacle. He has ordained the sacrifice and the praise of his name. He has ordained the writing of scripture and the proclaiming of its truths and the teaching of those truths to his people. He has clarified and called all of the things. When Jesus got, got to argue with the Samaritan woman, well, is it here on this mountain or is it in Jerusalem? You missed it, lady. Yeah, you don't worship what you know. You worship in spirit and in truth. Yeah. So who gets to define what truth is? That's only God, God. does. So yeah. God gets to define worship, and God tells you that worship is a communal experience. You cannot edify and build up one another if there is no one another. It, just, it can't be done. So no, you cannot forsake the assembling, Hebrews 10. You cannot ignore the works, Ephesians 2.10. You have to gather, work, strive, war, walk, all of those things together. This is key. Because while this is not a new controversy in the modern church, it is going to become a new battleground. Because how many of our churches are trying to forsake this right now? Because they're afraid. Yeah, there's a lot of them. And how many churches are trying to cover up and cash checks without actually doing the one another's? Remember, church is not singing and listening to a sermon. Church is gathering together with a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. That is what church is, and therefore that is what worship is. It is a gathering of people to the praise, exaltation, uh, learning, discovery, and exhortation of his excellencies as given in his word. And servitude. Servitude well, yes. to Christ. And you can't do that unless you're, you're actually servants. together. I mean, you, you see the apostles say it over and over again, I'm a slave of Christ. No. So, now, did I tell... So, I went on vacation one week and I missed church. Am I going to hell? That's not what I said. Hmm. I'm talking about the consistent forsaking of the assembling. Are there, oper- are there times when that might need to be put on hold for a short period? Yes. I mean, a lot of people made that decision in March and April of this year, especially in the United States. You know, we don't know what this is, so let's just be safe. Right. And now that we realize that this is not as dangerous as we thought it was, it's not about being safe. It's about being faithful, and that requires people to do what? It requires people to gather together. Right. Now, can I prove that from Scripture? Oh, I bet yes. you can. Yes. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it if I didn't think I could. Let's read the short one first, and then we'll read the punchlines that he expanded afterwards. First Corinthians 12. If you don't hear me explain anything else during this entire time— 1 Corinthians 12. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So what are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual gifts given to the body of believers. There are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. So even though there are a multitude of gifts, they all come from one Spirit. Even though those gifts manifest themselves in multitudes of ways, they are offered unto one Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works in all persons. So the outcomes and the fruits of all of these ministries are going to be different, but they are all going to be rendered and accomplished by the same God. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Bam. For the common good. Bam. Right there. Yep. You, so now let's, let's do the easy ones first. So, like, well, my spiritual gift is teaching. You know what that requires? 
people to teach. (laughs) Students. I can't exercise that by myself. Right. I I was going to say that earlier. I mean, what good is a priest if there are no parishioners, right? There you go. Priesthood. My spiritual gift is service. That means I actually have to have projects and people to serve. serve. Right. Mm, Here's a fun one. Now we'll get complicated. Well, mine's exhortation. Well, that means I have to have people to exhort. exhort, And Mm -hmm. I have to, here's the fun part. In order to exhort them, what must I know? I must know what has gone wrong and how to set it right. In order to do that, I must know what? The person. I have to be walking with them. Now, does does every family have an exhorter? I don't think so. Probably not. Probably not. But does every church have multiple exhorters? Yes, that's why we gather together. Well, well, mine's prayer. You can't do that one by yourself either. First of all, you need the Holy Spirit. Second of all, you need to know what to pray for. And the Holy Spirit isn't always just dropping that in your lap. It's not like you're sitting in your living room getting the download going, oh, Barbara is having a tooth pulled. I should pray for that. No, I need to know what? Mm-hmm. First of all, I need to know who Barbara is. I need to know why she's having her tooth pulled. I need to know things that I'm praying for. Does that mean we can never have an unspoken prayer? No, I didn't say that either. But the overall pattern is, pray for me. Why? I mean, yes, I will, but why? Like, Help me out. Let me walk together. Can I help? Is there something I can do? Is there someone that we can call? I mean, maybe Barbara's getting her tooth pulled because she's got a terrible dentist and all the other people in church go to a better dentist. She needs to tell people these things. Not to mention... You know, there is a certain benefit to actually telling someone, I've been praying for that. And there's a certain benefit in hearing someone tell you, I've been praying for you. It edifies. You can't hear that if you're not actually together. This is how this works. The community of faith is, catch this, a community. From the word commune, meaning together, dwelling, living, doing life. That doesn't mean we have to all move into the same building. No, but it does mean we need to know something about one another so that we can work and function. I mean, you you even see this with elders in the New Testament church. Mm -hmm. Timothy and Titus, when they're to appoint elders, where do they find these men? Like, do they just like drag them in off the street? No. No, they're they're raised up from the body of the church. Why? Because these are the people we have been discipling. And he, this man that we have raised up, will be able to disciple you now. Why? Because he knows you and he is of you and he he knows your struggles and your trials. This is why you can't sit there and say, well, I can sing songs from K-Love and I can listen to good sermons on my television. No, I mean, you can, but that's not church and that's not worship. Because as great as that exposition of scripture might be it is not grounded in your local body addressing local concerns and the people that you deal with day in and day out (coughs) yes our exegesis of scripture should be timeless but our applications are not right our applications are local well you also have to take into consideration the cultural aspects of of the new testament i mean we're talking about jewish people who you know, three times a year, they found themselves in Israel amongst their brethren, worshiping God in a community. I mean, that's that's something that I'm sure they would have passed on. Yes. You know, th- there's this need for community and this need to come together as a body to worship God together in a, in a way that he prescribed. You see this in Ephesians. Here's the long one. Ephesians chapter four. There is one body and one spirit. So one body of believers, one spirit. 
just as you were all also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right. one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and Paul quotes, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he, as he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill, fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Bam. Mm -hmm. Catch that. Evangelists are for equipping the body of believers. Believe it or not. Proclaiming the gospel is for the edification of God's people. Yeah, none yes. of these gifts are solo things that you yeah. do by yourself in a room. Yeah, it's for winning the lost, and it's also for equipping the saints. Pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, all of these things are meant to do what? Build up the body. You can't build up the body if you are first not part of the body. That's why we invite you to do what? Be a part of a church. Connect with believers because yeah. you need it. Yeah, we need each other. We do. We do. And, and anyone that, that, that says they don't, they, they haven't really taken a look around and seen the world for what it was today. And you, know that's, I mean? you need each other. I think that's the breakdown because we're too quick to surrender our church. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think we understand the fact that you know, there, there's a good phrase in the South, especially, that, <laughs> that blood is thicker than water. Yeah. That's... And the idea is that, you know, family is always the most important thing. Well, in the church, that's true because we're joined by the blood of Christ. Yeah. That's why Jesus talks about dividing families. Because if you've got a believer in a family, that believer is eventually going to get divided from that family. Because the blood of Christ is thicker than any blood that, that flows through your veins. And I think we've lost that idea in the modern world. We don't cling to the unity in Christ that we have, the gifts of the Spirit in the edification and worship of God as it has been given to us because we too often are too quick to forsake the people in the pews Okay, pews. These were these benches that we used to have that people would sit on them in church. I'm kidding. We forsake that so easily that we just think it's a throwaway. Yeah. I've got my personal relationship with Christ, and that's important. But that personal relationship with Christ is going to lead out into other things. It is going to spur you to action in a church for the building of believers, of believers, for the building up of yourself as well. Because you can't be discipled. Like, you have not been gifted. I don't care how special you think you are. You have not been gifted with teaching, evangelism, giving, service, and prayer all in your house. You just haven't. You, you haven't got it. Mm -hmm. Which means you need other people to do those things with and for you. And that's what the body does. That's what a loving Christian community accomplishes. And you may be saying, well, I'm not in a loving Christian community. Then find one. Yeah. Find right. one. Look at the community you're in and go, is this redeemable? And if the answer is yes, then fight tooth and nail for it until they tell you to leave or it's unredeemable. 
And when they tell you to leave or it's unredeemable, then find one that is good, anchor into it, and then work like there's no tomorrow because you're working for Christ because that's who has saved you. So did we miss something? No, I think it's pretty thorough. All right. So what have we learned today, children? Jesus built a church. Right. As Christians in that church, we have responsibilities. And we cannot be united to Christ and at the same time be separated from his bride. It just doesn't work. It never has worked. It never will work. So if you have any questions you want to argue with Lou, then info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can send your complaints. We'll argue with you. We like arguing with people. Yeah. It's one one of our spiritual gifts. (laughs) That's in in like 2 Corinthians 18. You'll find that there. It's right after second hesitations. I'm thinking 18. Yeah. Same book that tells you that um, God helps those that help themselves. Ooh. And cleanliness is next to godliness. It's, in the, it's, all, it's all in that same book. You should see the look that I'm getting right now. Lou is like, really, people? Really? Do you see what he's got to deal with? Yeah, there's going to be people looking for that book now. It's not there. Don't read Second Hesitations. It will not do you good. It's apocryphal. <laughs> it's not even a thing. Yeah. We should write it. It's hidden. Ooh, there's a project. We should write the book of Second Hesitations. And it, like put all these bad Bible cliches in it and fill it with just utter stupidity. That's Other not, people would buy that's it. That's not a bad idea. We're sitting on a million-dollar idea. Don't do it first unless yeah. you're going to give us credit and royalties, in which case, God bless you, have at it because I, I can use money for no work. <laughs> oh, yeah. Send your comments and your complaints there. You can also uh, check out – go to that website. You'll find all the information you want on us. You can answer all the questions. It will do you good. Um, until we meet you guys again, read your Bible. It will do you good. Bye. Bye.